is the vacuum the source of all physical reality and the engine that links the human mind to extracausal consciousness? Let us explore this idea. On podcast two, where dreams come from, the quantum mechanical explanation of spirituality. Thanks for returning. This is once again Dr. Harrison. This time we're going to talk about the vacuum. So how is nothingness the source of all material reality and as we will postulate the engine of extracausal consciousness? To do this we must first define the vacuum. And in order to define the vacuum we use either the classical definition and by classical, I mean classical physics, that physics from Isaac Newton to, I, to Albert Einstein, or the quantum mechanical explanation, those ideas of physics that developed at the time of Einstein and beyond to modernity. The classical explanation is very easy to conceptualize. It's highly intuitive. The vacuum, as any astronaut would tell you, is devoid of air so the true vacuum is devoid of matter, and also it is devoid of energy. First, let's go back into the classical definition at the time of Einstein and in relativistic equations, and the most famous equation of all equals mc squared. This tells us that matter and energy are not separate entities, but are different phases of the same condition. However, the proportions are not equal equals mc squared states that in order to form energy, matter is multiplied times the square of the velocity of light, that being 300,000 kilometers per second squared. Thus, a small amount of matter gives a huge amount of energy. As the residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki can attest to, a few teaspoons of matter destroyed the center of their cities and killed hundreds of thousands of their residents. Removing matter and energy is an attainable condition. Well, think of it this way. There's a lot of atoms in the universe, 500,000 atoms lined end to end would not even be able to cross the thickness of one hair. Yet, there is so much volume in the universe that if we dispersed all the atoms from all the galaxies, stars, planets, nebulae, and black holes, each square meter or approximately each square yard would only contain about five atoms. So there is plenty of space that would contain no matter. Energy can also be extracted from the vacuum. In deep space, there is some temperature. It's called four and a half degrees Kelvin. It's the micro microwave remnants from the Big Bang. But scientists in the lab have been able to get as close as a billionth 
of a degree above absolute zero. Because of thermodynamic reasons that are tangential to our discussion, you can never get to absolute zero. But we can get pretty close to creating, in the classical sense, a complete vacuum. There is one flaw with the classical definition. It doesn't account for 96% of the energy and matter in the universe. We've already accounted in our classical definition the background temperature from the Big Bang in our 4% of accounted for matter and energy. How we know there is missing matter and energy is kind of interesting. Let's start with matter. The galaxies spin very rapidly. If, uh, if there was just the matter that we account for, there would not be enough gravity to hold the spinning galaxy together, and centrifugal force would drive the stars out into deep space. The unaccounted matter seems to halo around the galaxies, and we call this matter that we can't measure, we've never been able to get an idea of what it consists of, as dark matter. The vast reservoir of dark energy that is also unaccounted for was found in a very circuitous manner. A gentleman named Hubble, who is first noted because he discovered that our galaxy was one of 200 billion galaxies and not the entire universe, through um, Doppler effects, determined that the universe was expanding. With inertia, of course, it takes no more energy to, to expand a universe. But what has been found with more precise measurements in, in recent times is that the universe is not only expanding, it is accelerating. This acceleration requires a tremendous amount of mass energy. So if the mass energy of the universe, the 96% of missing mass energy, cannot be found in our observable universe, then either it is some form of exotic mass energy uh, that deludes our sensors, or it is found in the vacuum. But the classical vacuum is cold, dark, and devoid of mass energy by its definition. But the quantum vacuum may be different, and let's see if it could be the reservoir for this missing energy and mass. The observation of the quantum vacuum cannot be done directly as we do with our eyes and temperature probes to the classical vacuum. In order to explore the quantum vacuum, we must have two conditions. We must slow time and we must become infinitely small in order in our mind's eye to observe it. The slowing of time has to be extreme. We go to something called Planck's time which is 10 to the negative 43 seconds. So in our thought experiment here, we must stretch a second to be as long as the age of our current universe. Our thought probe must also get very small. So let's um, take a standard basketball. Expand it to the size of the Earth. If you're standing on the surface of that basketball, you will notice that everything is made of golf ball to baseball size objects. These are our atoms. But from our basketball world, we look up into the sky, quote, which is our vacuum, and it still appears just like the classical vacuum. It's cold, dark, and void of anything. Let's let our mind's eye get even smaller. So now one of these atoms, let's take the simplest one, 
the golf ball size one as a simple hydrogen atom with an electron and a proton and make it the size of a sports stadium. What the mind notices is there is an, a shell of electrons. For this hydrogen atom, it is a single electron that surrounds the center of the stadium at the nosebleed seats and it's, the electron appears to be everywhere at once. The other way of looking at this electron cloud because of what's called the wave-particle duality is that the cloud is actually a wave and it is actually a standing wave like you pluck a guitar string and you see the wave bouncing back and forth. But think of it not linearly and not even circumference but surrounding the whole atom is a standing wave shell. These are the SP shells that you remember from chemistry when you were talking about the valence of the uh, electron. Remember, if an electron orbited around an atom like the original model, instead of being a standing wave shell, then the electron orbit would deteriorate rapidly. The electron would fall into the nucleus, hit the proton. The proton would become a neutron, all chemistry in the universe would stop instantaneously, stars would become neutron stars, and the universe would be much, much different. With our atom the size of a stadium, we can go to the center of the stadium and find the nucleus. The nucleus would be the size of a marble to a golf ball, and it would contain 99.99% of the matter of the, um, of the atom. In this illustration of a hydrogen atom, it is a single proton. But in this thought experiment, we are still too large to witness the quantum vacuum. In order to do that, we must change our relative prospectus and make this single atom the size of our entire universe with a radius of 13.6 billion light years. Its nucleus, about 100,000 light years, approximately the size of the Milky Way galaxy. Just to review what a light year is, I think it's important to just understand how far light can travel in one second. On the Earth, in our usual size, a light beam can travel around the Earth seven and a half times in one second. If we bounce a laser beam, another form of light, off the moon, it can travel the half million miles in about three seconds. So a light year is a tremendous distance. Now standing on the electron cloud from our universe-sized atom, the vacuum looks very different. It is a tumultuous, reverberating membrane, not the serene, quiet membrane of Einstein, which is three volume dimensions, height, width, and depth, plus time, Instead, it is an involuting and raging membrane that consists of 11 dimensions, 10 of space and 1 of time. Before we look into the vacuum, the quantum vacuum, let's look at our universe-sized atom and particularly at our galaxy-sized nucleus. What you would note is that the nucleus, nothing, but empty space. There are only three permanent objects within this galaxy-sized nucleus. They are two up quarks and one down quark. And these reverberating particles 
that are, were formed during the Big Bang relative to the galaxy-sized nucleus are only about 10 meters long, about the size of an average tree. So our question will be, how does three tree-sized objects form a nucleus the size of a galaxy relative to its own size? For this, we will have to look back up into our sky, the quantum vacuum. Picture the quantum vacuum like a tempest-raged sea. It has waves. Some of them go up and some of them go down. This balancing of the up and down waves gives the quiescent appearance at our size that the vacuum has no energy. From these thrust-up waves are streams of fluid always in pairs, like, the, like two swans kissing. These are going to be our virtual particles. And for reasons we will explore later, there is always a particle and an antiparticle, or matter and antimatter. These leap up, they interact in Planck's time, 10 to the negative 43 seconds, and they annihilate each other. They return their energy back into the vacuum but they do not return their energy back to the vacuum as a particle. Remember, everything can be either a wave or a particle because of wave-particle duality. So they return their energy back as a wave form. Just to review waves very quickly, a wave has a frequency which is equivalent to how many wavelengths pass through a certain point per second. Now, light always travels at the same velocity, 300,000 kilometers a second. But the wavelengths can vary. The shorter the wavelength, the higher the energy. Wavelengths are like an S put on its side. Uh, the whole wavelength is the up and the, and the down returning back to the neutral after completing a complete S wave function. Waves can only return if the entire wavelength is returned back. This will become important. There are two other structures that form in our quantum sea of energy. There is the whirlpool, these conduit depressions in the ocean. Both classical and quantum physics have dubbed them wormholes, a theorem first developed in relativity by Albert Einstein and one of his graduate students. Our third aquatic analogy are the foam. The foam is formed by the waves and also dissipated by the energy of the waves. These are our primordial universe bubbles. Let's go into a little more detail about each of these three quantum vacuum structures. The spray that comes off the waves, but really still connected, are the virtual particles. These are, in their most quiescent phase, electron and anti-electron, or what's known as a positron. They form spontaneously as probability uh, induces energy to a certain part of the vacuum, or they can be induced by those permanent particles that were formed in the Big Bang, the quarks as we have mentioned, the electrons that we have mentioned, other less familiar particles were those that create the photons, the neutrinos, and a short list of other permanent particles 
that have been characterized by particle physicists. How these permanent particles reverberate gives them their physical properties. A graviton will reverberate different than a quark will reverberate different than a electron or neutrino. This will be explored in a lot of detail in our next lecture when we talk about dimensions and string theory. But this may answer our question that we posed earlier, how do three tree-sized objects influence something the size of a galaxy? That is, how does a quark produce a proton that is infinitesimally larger than the quark itself? Well, the idea is that the reverberation of the quarks coaxes from the vacuum virtual particles inducing these particle fields, and one of the particle fields is a proton. Again, this will go into much more detail when we talk about string theory. Though any virtual particle pair that is induced may last only at Planck's time, 10 to negative 43 seconds, and not be really part of reality, the confluence of all these induced virtual particles forms what we would consider as the proton itself. The same can be said of, new, of neutrons, neutrinos, electrons, photons, and any other subatomic particle. But in physics, we're not only interested in particles, we're interested in force fields. Fields like the electromagnetic field, the strong weak and weak forces, and gravity. Let's use the same theorem of induction of virtual particles to explain how these tiny particles can disperse their influence throughout the atom and throughout the volume of space. All the current theories now use virtual particles. The virtual particles are derived from the quantum energy. Quantum energy is different than thermal energy. Quantum energy has to do with the energy bound up in the 11-dimensional membrane. As you approach Planck's length, you would see this. The membrane begins to oscillate more violently. At Planck's length, it starts to twist itself into knots. That's why you can't go any smaller than Planck's length because time and space are twisted into knots and lose all meaning. Though quantum energy is different than thermal energy, it still follows the dictums of Einstein's famous equation equals mc squared, or in this case, mass equals energy, divided by the velocity of light squared. Virtual particles are thus derived from the quantum energy. Under normal circumstances, this energy is then recycled as the virtual particles are virtual matter and virtual antimatter, and they annihilate themselves in Planck's time, 10 to the negative 43 seconds, recycling that energy back to the quantum time-space membrane. The basic parameters of physics have been found through experimentation. Some examples of these parameters are the mass, the energy, the quantum spin of a particle. Various theories have been developed to explain this. One is the virtual messenger particle. A photon that is produced, say, by one electron hits another electron and bounces away. Since the electron doesn't lose mass, the energy has to come from the vacuum itself, the quantum vacuum. Virtual particle clouds are used in other theories, such as quantum electrodynamics. 
The electron core in this theory is surrounded by a virtual particles, photons, that dissociate into fermions and antifermion pairs. The virtual photons have no effect on the charge, but the positive virtual fermion in each pair is attracted near the electron core. The result is to shield the very negative electron so it has a charge of minus one balanced with a proton. Like the electron, the quark is also surrounded by a virtual particle field. These are gluons and pairs of quarks and their antiquarks. Because of the strong nuclear force, the virtual gluons, unlike photons, do have a strong force charge, which is called color, to distinguish it from uh, electrodynamic charges. This means both the virtual gluon cloud and the overlapping cloud of quarks and antiquark pairs interfere with the forces away from the core of the quark. While there are two types of electron charge, arbitrary named positive and negative, there are three, also three types of color charges arbitrarily given the name red, green, and blue. This is why it's called quantum chromodynamics. The quark core carries a red charge, then the surrounding cloud of virtual quark pairs and virtual anti-red quarks will be attracted to the red quark core, while the virtual red quark core will be repelled to a greater distance. In fact, this effect um, shields the color change of the quark core, but the overlapping cloud of virtual gluons has a color charge that is the, has the opposite effect. All the shenanigans is basically to diffuse the color charge of the quark over the volume of the surrounding virtual particle cloud. Therefore, the net color charge decreases as you penetrate through the virtual cloud. Much as the, with, Earth, with the Earth, the net gravity uh, falls as you get towards the core of the Earth. I myself imagine this quite differently. The vacuum continuously produces virtual particles, particles and antiparticles. But the permanent particles that were formed in the Big Bang, say an electron, may induce through their probability wave, remember, there's another duality, that all things are both particles and waves. So let's say two electrons approach each other. Each electron induces from the vacuum a radiance of virtual particles. The electron normally doesn't have any current because it pushes against the normal particle formed in space symmetrically. But if two electrons approach each other, their wave functions interfere. They interfere in an additive form. So between the two electrons, the vacuum induces more virtual particles in a vector directly between the two electrons. This pushes the electrons apart. The same phenomena can be found with uh, a combination of permanent particles, the proton, which has two up quarks and one down quark, and giving it a plus one positive charge. The proton produces a proton field. The, and if it approaches another proton, the both of them normally are static because they radiate out symmetrically the virtual particle cloud pressure. But if they approach each other, the wave is additive and more virtual particles and a higher virtual particle pressure is produced in a vector directly between them, 
pushing them away. With opposite charges, there's also an interference. Say an electron approaches a proton. They interfere in a negative fashion. The peak overlaps with a trough and a trough with a peak, giving a negative interference, like two waves approaching each other out of phase, giving a calm to the water. So what happens is, since they are both radiating out particles, but between them there is a paucity. There's only the normal particle pressure. So the higher particle pressure everywhere except for the tangent between them pushes them together. But an electron and a proton don't normally, unless there's a high degree of energy, impact each other. And this is because of another wave interference pattern. When the electron approaches at a certain distance, the interference pattern forms the electron into a standing wave. If another electron comes into this shell, it'll continue as a standing wave. A third electron will go to a higher shell. The probability waves interfere in such a way, along with the proton, that there is almost no probability of the electron being found between the shells. Schrodinger was a physicist who figured out these probability waves. He was on vacation with his wife and his mistress. He had a lot of time, I don't know how, and he, he came up with probability waves. Since there is almost no probability, or very close to zero probability, that electron be found in between the standing wave shells due to interference, wave interference, then the electron doesn't just move up in an orbit to the next shell, it does a quantum leap. It goes from one shell to the other without really going through the space when you add energy to the uh, electron. And this makes a lot of sense, too, that these are standing wave shells, because if they were orbiting electrons, the orbit would decay in microseconds, the electron would fall into the proton, the proton would become a neutron, the chemistry of that atom would stop, all stars would become neutron stars, and the universe would look much different and probably unable to support life. We're talking a lot about virtual particles because virtual particles, as we'll soon see, is the fuel that allows for extra-causal consciousness in the sentient being. Before we get started with this, I'd like to make one clarification. We talked about classical and quantum vacuum. You never could have a classical vacuum inside a cell or any biological creature. Nature abhors a vacuum, the expression goes. If you had a vacuum within a cell or within tissue, the pressure of the atmosphere would disrupt the tissue. In the classical vacuum, water both boils and freezes at room temperature. So the cell or the tissue or the creature itself would boil and freeze simultaneously, leading to a very painful death. The quantum vacuum is much different. The quantum vacuum is just any space between the permanent particles. Even the virtual particle clouds that may form the structure of, say, a proton or a neutron. So the quantum vacuum exists everywhere, including inside our cells. To understand the importance of virtual particles and extracausal consciousness, we have to go back to the work of a physicist named Casimir. Casimir was working on van der Waals forces, which are 
uh, oscillating polarities of certain molecules, and uh, he wanted to quantize them. Um, some, one of these uh, van der Waal forces is actually what keeps the bilipid membranes of a cell uh, at a particular distance. Microtubules and bilipid membranes will shortly become very important to the mechanics of extracausal consciousness. What Cosmere found was if you put two non-polarized plates close together, close enough together, they, they would attract each other. The reason is such. Virtual particles form and they annihilate each other and they go to return their energy. But they do not return their energy as a particle. Remember the wave-particle duality. They have to return the energy back to the time-space fabric as a wave. To review what a wave is, a wave is energy. It has a frequency, which means how many wavelengths go through a certain point in space over a certain amount of time. A wave function looks like the letter S on its side. It has to oscillate up through neutral, down, and back to neutral again, going through the complete S wave function. That is a wavelength. Now, light always travels at light speed, which is tau zero, 300,000 kilometers a second. But the wavelength of light can vary. Longer wavelengths like red are less energetic. Shorter wavelengths like violet are more energetic. But according to the Cosmere effect, the only way the energy can return back to the time-space fabric is as if it returns in a complete wavelength. Partial wavelengths will not return the energy. That energy joins with other partial wavelengths and reforms as a complete wavelength outside the barrier. The closer the barriers, the higher the percentage of incomplete wavelengths and less energy is returned to the vacuum between the two barriers. What happens with the Casimir effect is if there's less energy in the vacuum between the barriers, less, there's less energy to form virtual particles. So there's going to be less virtual particles being formed between the barriers than on the outside of the barrier. Think of a submarine that goes very deep. The water pressure implodes the wall of the submarine if it goes too deep. The normal particle pressure implodes the two barriers together because there is a paucity of particles in between the barriers in this area of constrained quantum vacuum. So one of our vacuum structures, the virtual particles, are being formed less because the vacuum has less energy to form them. But there's something even more important going on. Wormholes that naturally form in the vacuum, almost like a Swiss cheese, they allow the electron to be everywhere at once around a molecule, holding the molecule together and allowing for a covalent bonding. But normally these wormholes only last long enough, only expand out at the speed of light wide enough to let the electron get through, the permanent particle electron. But in a negative vacuum, they last longer. First of all, a negative vacuum has an anti-gravity effect holding the mouths of, of the wormholes open. And also, there's less disruptive energy to destroy them. The same energy that forms them usually immediately disrupts them at Planck's time. But they're lasting longer, so they're seeping out of virtual reality into true reality. 
There is a new field that utilizes these quantum systems into biological systems that is known as quantum biology. Though most of the research is fairly recent, the, Sir Roger Penrose, a mathematician who worked with, worked with Hawkins on some of the theories of black holes, in my opinion, should really be designated as the founder of quantum biology. He was the developer, along with Hammerhoff, a physician and anesthesiologist, on the quantum brain theory. What this theory states is that there is coherence, and by coherence I mean a similarity in probability waves between the microtubules of the neuron. Microtubules have two functions. One, they form the cytoskeleton of the neuron, but secondarily, they modulate the neurotransmission, and thus are very important in the transmission. Though they do not originate the transmission, that comes from the cell membrane, they do modulate it to a fairly great extent. Penrose stated that this coherence between these microtubules allowed for what is called entanglement. Entanglement in physics is relation between like systems, often subatomic particles, but don't have to be subatomic particles, to transfer information to similar probability wave functions, and this can be done locally in a non-contiguous microtubule within a neuron or a non-contiguous microtubule within another neuron in the brain, but entanglement allows for the transfer of information at instantaneous speed, that means greater than the light velocity, to anywhere throughout time and space. Anywhere throughout time and space could be the other side of the universe. It could be a different time in our own universe. It could be even an entirely different universe in the multiverse. What had always seemed obvious to me that the allowance of entanglement to non-contiguous areas that could be light years away must have something to do with general relativity and wormholes or interconnecting spaces. But only recently has that relationship been de delineated. And why this is so interesting in the microtubules, remember these are compact spaces. The diameter is only about 12 nanometers in length, certainly small enough to cut off partial wavelengths of the energy that has returned from the annihilation of virtual particles, particles and antiparticles. So that energy is not returned to the vacuum in this vector of the microtubule. So the microtubule becomes more negative. If a microtubule becomes more negative, if the quantum vacuum becomes more negative, the wormholes will last longer. This has now been shown to be directly related to the ability to entangle. What Penrose and Hammerhoff were trying to show was that the brain could have quadrillions of more interconnections and in such a state of global coherence and entanglement function much like a quantum computer. Our theory on extracausal consciousness will try to show the possibility that if there are similar 
probability wave functions or confluence of probability wave functions such as a brain or a manifold of higher dimensions somewhere out there, somewhere in a different time, in a different universe, or possibly even in hyperspace, that our brains could act as a transducer. What a transducer does is change one physical property to another. The simplest is this microphone I'm talking on right now. It changes airwaves, percussion waves, into electronic waves by vibrating a membrane surrounded by a magnet. But a transducer can also become a speaker if you rewire it correctly. What we're going to try to show in the future, especially when we get more into quantum biology, is whether or not the brain is a transducer between the biological of the 11-dimension universe that we are in and our organisms ourselves and extracausal consciousness linking instantaneously to like biological systems, other brains in the multiverse, or to completely different systems in multi-dimensional hyperspace. With what I presented you so far, this seems pretty far-fetched, but it's also pretty far-fetched that there is a God that comes from nothing that created the universe. I'm going to show you a theory that I may not be able to prove to 100% that it's correct, but in my own thinking, it is a billion times more likely than anything that religion has been able to provide. At least with extracausal consciousness, we will not be dependent on magic. We will not break any of the known physical laws of relativity or quantum mechanics. I almost didn't pursue these podcasts because I ran into a bit of a dilemma. I read about an experiment that used um, viscous films that were a hundred atomic diameters apart and produced quite a Casimir effect. More importantly, it created a negative vacuum in between the bilipid membrane layers. I went to um, a membrane physicist that I knew from Princeton, and she told me there is no evidence that the Casimir effect plays any role in cell lipid membranes. But since this time, with the advancements coming in from quantum biology, there is mounting evidence that the Casimir effect may be the predominant force controlling the function and structure of the cell membrane. The cell membrane, of course, we said was important because it initiates the neurotransmission. What I was wrong about was just to think of it as two static viscous layers. The cell membrane has short and long polar molecules that interdigitate, and they form chambers with proximity and surface area for the Casimir effect to uh, propagate and for wormholes to last longer relative to regular vacuum. In the beginning of this lecture, we talked about a third quantum vacuum structure we designated as the a primordial universe bubble. We gave it the aquatic analogy of sea foam. The reason we're not going to talk about this in great detail today is because I have an entire lecture on the birthing of universes to explain the multiverse and the idea of parallel universes. Very briefly, I'll just tell you that the primordial universes do propagate into reality at the event horizon of a black hole. The reason for this has nothing to do with the Cosimir effect. It has to do with the tremendous gravity and tunneling. And if you want to read about it, you can look up Hawking's radiation. In the beginning of the lecture, we talked about the missing 
energy and mass in the universe. The missing energy, I think we fairly well explained, as the reverberation of the 11-dimensional membranes that become quite contorted and violent as you approach the Planck length, and they extend throughout all of the universe. The missing mass may not be so mysterious and may be found in the classical vacuum as superparticles that have been predicted since the time I started with quantum mechanics. I think it, the theory actually started supersymmetry in the 70s, and it predicts superparticles that are very massive. A um, superparticle is a symmetrical particle related to um, the known fermions, and these may be such as a electron, which would be the superparticle would be the selectron, the quirk would be the squirk, and as a whole they are known as sparticles, superparticles, or in some circles as WIMPs, weakly interactive massive particles. But here I'd like to interject one of my own theories that some contribution of the missing mass comes from the quantum vacuum in the form of the virtual particles. The virtual particles that form the fields, that modulate the particles, that form structures of the protons through their uh, particle clouds may have some significant contribution to the missing uh, dark matter. And they also would halo around galaxies because the probability wave function of the permanent particles would induce the virtual particles from the quantum vacuum. For more information on the Casimir effect, in cell membranes, go to my website, newspiritualparadigm.org, click the text button, and there's an article presented by the National Institute of Health by the Journal of Cell Membrane Biology. For information on how the Casimir effect stabilizes wormholes, I would suggest two articles, Wormholes, Time Machines, and the Weak Energy Condition by Kip Thorne, and another one, Space and Time Warps, by Stephen Hawkins. To read about some of the MIT res research that shows the link between entanglement and wormholes, a synopsis article in Scientific American from December 11th of 2013, titled Physics Finds a Link Between Wormholes and Spooky Action at a Distance. Spooky Action at a Distance is what Einstein called entanglement. The theory of the quantum brain, as developed by Dr. Penrose and Dr. Hameroff, can be found throughout the Internet. All you have to do is look up ORC-OR theory, and you'll find multiple articles delineating the details. There's another article. I hate to even mention it. It's in the Huffington Post, but it's an article by Hameroff, and it is kind of interesting. It's titled, A Scientist Show What Happens to the Soul After Death, and it's uh, from 10-28-2012. It features a brief um, video from the show Through the Wormhole by Morgan Friedman on the Science Channel. And even though it's not much for detail, it is kind of interesting, some of the ideas that are presented. Usually, Dr. Hammerhoff's lectures are very detailed and complex. He's a professor at the University of Arizona, and I would suggest listening to some of his lectures on YouTube to get a good sense of quantum biology. Once more, I want to thank you for your interest in extracausal consciousness, and I look forward to speaking to you in upcoming lectures. Goodbye.